Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Crash and Ride podcast. I'm Patrick Ferguson. I'm your host. Tonight is the third in our series of song explications. Tonight I'm doing the song Clamp Down by The Clash. Every year about this time, I have a friend in Chicago who celebrates the 12 days of Strummermas by putting up lots of Joe Strummer-related content because he's a huge Joe Strummer fan. I am too. I was inspired by that and thought, you know what? I love the song Clamp Down. Let's talk about that tonight. I'll admit to you that it is already Wednesday night. I am cutting this at the last possible minute. I spent the whole day trying to buy a fucking car, man. I hate trying to buy a car. I hate this game they play at the dealership where they're like, uh, well, what are you willing to pay? Like, man, I told you my number when I walked in the door. And then you let me go and do a test drive and take it to my mechanic to look it over. And then you were like, well, we can't meet your number. But how about this number? It's like, motherfucker, I told you my number. And I walked out the door. I'm sure that dude's unhappy about it, but, you know, I hate that fucking game, man. I could rant about that for a good long while. It's not my favorite thing, man. We don't we don't buy cars unless one of ours blows up, and we had one blow up, so we had to go spend the day swimming with the sharks, which wasn't my favorite thing, but we, we ended up getting home with a car after the second or third place we went to, and, um, you know, um, now we have something to drive for a while, and I'm going to do this Clash thing, man, because I'm stoked about it. If this is your first episode of Crash and Ride, I'm sort of surprised you found your way here through the song explication episodes because the vast majority of our episodes are about overcoming anxiety and depression and being a more productive musician and a happier person. So um, anything before episode 41 is about that. Um, the song explication started with 41 and 43 and now 45. Every week I go through a song I absolutely love and I just break it down, talk a little bit about why I love it and the context that it was recorded and released in. Uh, sometimes I drag out my guitar and even though I'm a terrible guitar player because I'm primarily a drummer, I pull some of the parts out of the song and show how they relate to the other parts in the song and maybe get a guitar effect or two out to show why something sounds special or cool. And, you know, if you're like a real musician and you hear me like misidentify a chord or a part and you go like, hey, man, I don't think that guy's a real guitar player. Like, bro, I know. <laughs> I'm just talking about why I love songs. I wanted this to be kind of like coming by my house on a Wednesday night and sitting down with me and the record player and a cup of coffee or something and being like, let's talk about music we love, man. Let's talk about why we love it. So that's what this song explication thing is all about. So Clamp Down by The Clash. Uh Clampdown is on London Calling, The Clash's third LP. It was recorded in mid to late summer of 1979. It was originally released in the UK on the 14th of December 1979 by CBS Records, and then in the United States in January of 1980 on Epic Records. It went on to sell 5 million records. One of the things that's fascinating to me, knowing that number, uh, is that when The Clash first started trying to write for this record, they had been in a one-year dry spell. They had moved out of their original rehearsal studios um, because they had broken uh, off relationships with their first management company, and they had gone looking for a new space with the help of Johnny Green, their tour manager, and he found them a space called Vanilla Studios. And when they first set up in there, they didn't have shit. They had been touring heavily on the first two records, and they had zero new material. So according to all the research I've done and everything I've heard through the years in different interviews with these guys, they started rehearsals in May of 1979 with no material. The last thing they'd put out was the Cost of Living EP, and that had like one cover and three songs they'd written years earlier. And so they were dry, 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 dry. And the pressure was on, right? The Sex Pistols were already in New York. It was just months before Sid Vicious's unfortunate death. Um, but like... They were being sort of hailed as this voice of a generation, the, the like voice of working class disaffected youth. And um, man, that's, uh, that's a lot of pressure to put on a band. 
So in August of 1979, they enter Wessex Studios in London with a producer named Guy Stevens, who uh, the record label hated, apparently, and uh, he was apparently a bit of a character. He's reported to have thrown several chairs during the sessions and um, was a big partier, and so... Um, you know, the Clash felt like he kind of fit with their lifestyle, but the label was like writing big checks. And so it was kind of an interesting dynamic, but the Clash held the day and they got to the guy they wanted and they made this amazing record. And yet, with the benefit of years of hindsight, we can look back and say, yes, this was a punk record. It had punk energy and it sort of, but at the time, you know, it was a big departure from the sort of three chords and the truth, like early punk movement and the first two Clash LPs, The Clash and Give Them Enough Rope. This was a bit more nuanced record, and uh, I read this great interview with Don Letts, who was a friend of The Clash and a, a Jamaican-descended DJ who was sort of a cultural icon in London at the time. And he credits the um, sort of diversification of influences on the record with uh, the fact that they now had a little bit of breathing room and they could kind of dig into the influences of each member of the Clash. Now, the Clash were, of course, Mick Jones, uh, Joe Strummer, Paul Simonon, and Topper Heaton. And according to Don Letts, like, you know, each of those guys uh, had some, like, history before they came to the Clash and they had some kind of obsessions. Like Mick Jones was really into New York hip-hop culture, which was just sort of exploding at the time. And Joe Strummer was uh, deeply like in love with R&B. Uh, Paul Simonon had a massive reggae record collection. And Topper Heaton, before he came to The Clash, had been in soul and funk bands. And all of those things sort of show up on London Calling. And that's what I think explains why London Calling was such a different record for a punk band at that time. Now, as we start to talk about the song Clampdown, which is a pretty straight-ahead punk song, it's important to contextualize like, the clash in the political attitudes of the moment. A year prior, they had headlined the Rock Against Racism concert in Victoria Park in London. Um, and, and the Rock Against Racism thing sort of sprang up um, in London in 1976 after Eric Clapton was just apparently hammered on stage and rambling and he said some really fucked up things there was a conservative english politician named enoch powell he had made a famous speech that people now refer to as the river of blood speech that was this anti-immigrant speech about how they were going to flood england and change its character forever and the streets would run with blood and um eric clapton for some reason was just like talking about how great Enoch Powell was in the middle of a concert. He went on to say, um, let me find, I got my notes here, uh, that England had become overcrowded, unquote, and that they should vote for Powell to stop Britain from becoming, quote, a black colony. Uh, he also told the audience that Britain should get the foreigners out, get the wogs out, get the coons out, and then reportedly shouted the National Front slogan, keep Britain white, which, yeah, what a dipshit. I mean, if all of this sounds familiar, it's because it's familiar. <laughs> it's because it's happening right now. There were these street gangs. Uh, I hesitate to use the word skinheads because skinhead also connotates a whole working class English youth movement that predates the rise of the National Front by a considerable span of time. I think maybe 20 years or something. But um, the National Front was also made up of men who shaved their heads and they would attack immigrants and they would attack people who they thought might be gay in the streets of London and um you know, uh, the punk movement uh, felt like they needed to respond. So Rock Against Racism was born and there were chapters all over England, you know, Gang of Four. And the Mekons were really active in Leeds. And, of course, The Clash and, and Steel Pulse and X-Ray Specs were in London. There was a chapter in Birmingham. There was probably a chapter in Manchester. And they would have these big concerts and they would have these shows. 
And, um, you know, the idea was that they would sort of create some solidarity between the black and white music communities at the time. Add to this the additional tension that was sort of simmering beneath the surface with the troubles in Northern Ireland and um, also the the enormous protest movement that was rising to protest the detention of Nelson Mandela in South Africa and apartheid in there. You know, there was a very political moment. And the Clash, I think, like any rock band, sort of formed with this idea that they just wanted to have a good time. Like, youth unemployment was really high in England at the time, and, and so there was just lots of time to play guitar and go to the pub and, and play music, and yet, like, there was an environment where you kind of forced to have an opinion, and The Clash, you know, they were sort of crystallized into this working-class political band by that moment. Also, you, you can't be a guy who owns a guitar in London in, in 1978 and just let Eric Clapton say that shit, you know? Like, <laughs> you had to say something. And the and the song that Mick Jones and Joe Strummer wrote in Clampdown, I think, is just a perfect riposte to all that. Like, it's it's a really great protest song. Let's, let's jump into the song. It's documented somewhere that this song actually began as an instrumental um, called Working and Waiting, and that um, the lyrics came... Uh, just before they went into the studio. And as I mentioned, this song is probably the most straight-ahead punk song on the record, and that, that like it comes out of the gate with that attitude. The song just opens with this squall of feedback and, uh, and Topper Heaton counting the band in with just this great fury, and then it starts this descending uh, series of chords that's the kind of... It's a little intro that's disconnected from the main part of the song, but kind of sets this uh, um, heavy mood. You get this great descending melody line, starts with A, goes a half step down, then a whole step, then a whole step, ends on E. You know, I think it was Bob Mothersbaugh from Devo, who's a guitar player in Devo, and they played a show with The Clash, or they were at a show where The Clash played, and like Mothersbaugh was just losing his mind over the, over the guitar sound, and he went and like picked up Mick Jones or, or, or Joe Strummer's guitar and they turned the amp on you know and they were just hanging out and he couldn't make it do the thing and then like it occurred to him that it wasn't really the guitar or the amp or whatever pedal was on the floor it was just the intensity with which the guitar was struck and it's true that tube amps respond differently with higher input like that's what the whole science of overdrive pedals is about sending more signal into that first preamp stage of a tube amplifier but like there's also a point where like you know hitting a guitar with a closed fist is like sending more information into the pickups down the cable and into the amplifier and you know maybe that's part of the reason why joe strummer was a telecaster player because they can be remarkably stable instruments when struck that hard man i wish i knew where to look for that devo quote because it was it was good i liked it um so yeah, so you've got that, that, that melody line, that initial chord progression, and Joe Strummer is singing over the top of it in the most lackadaisical way. And I think Mick Jones sort of intones the other intro vocal part. It's actually a little difficult to figure out what the lyrics are here, but I someone transposed them, and uh, I think these are right. The kingdom is ransacked, the jewels all taken back, and the chopper descends. They're hidden in the back with a message on a half-baked tape, and the spool goes round, saying I'm back here in this place, and I could cry, and there's smoke you could click on. <laughs> like, it seems like a, a scene from a heist film, maybe? 
Um, but of course, if there's a chopper involved, then that means that there's a there's a state actor, and um, so maybe it's an espionage film too. Um, but it just seems like a little bit of poetry, you know. Tape figured very prominently in Cold War shenanigans back then. A lot of times there were tape drops in London between Russian spies and American spies, and vice versa, double agents and all that. And it seems like there might be sort of a sly reference to that, like. Um, it's it's worth your time if you ever get a chance and you're in D.C. to go to the Spy Museum and see what they used to hide micro cassettes and other tapes in. It's kind of wild. Hedon here is playing an almost like disco beat, like 16th notes on the hi-hat, one and a two and a three and a four and a one and a two and a, and um, it, uh, it, it kind of reaches the end of that little intro and we come back to the A. And that's the first place Just Drummer's voice comes forward in the mix with the line, what are we going to do now? And then Topper Heaton locks into this like militant backbeat one, two, three, four, very reminiscent of Gang of Four, very reminiscent of the whole like rock steady, rock against racism vibe. And before we get into the lyrics of the first verse of the song, I want to relay an anecdote I read from Elvis Costello's uh, autobiography. Just before The Clash was supposed to go on their first tour of Northern Ireland, and understand that like this is the height of the troubles. And um, if you don't know much about the conflict, um, you've got Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and they're split. And, and Northern Ireland is largely occupied by British military forces trying to control an uprising of, of Republicans, uh, rebels who want to reunite Northern Ireland with Ireland. And it's an incredibly bloody conflict. You don't just have this British army of occupation in the north. You've also got this guerrilla army in the form of the Irish Republican Army. And there are paramilitary loyalist factions like the Ulster Defense Association, which was responsible for like 30% of the deaths during the Troubles. And it wasn't always, you know, the IRA that the Ulster Defense Association targeted. And Joe Strummer gets this letter on the eve of their first tour to Northern Ireland and it says don't come or there's going to be bodies in the streets and it's all written in red ink and it's got a Belfast return address so it kind of rattled Joe's cage a little bit of course they went because they're punk band and you know fuck you buddy we'll play where we want and they did the thing but um, Elvis Costello talks about going there on his tour and being struck by how many of these British soldiers who were standing around with you know automatic rifles and and sub guns and 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 you know hanging around around armored personnel carriers just look like teenagers and that's what the song Oliver's Army is about Oliver of course being Oliver Cromwell the founder of the British army and Elvis Costello was just writing about how struck he was by the fact that like there's all these kids who would have been on the dole in England who just felt compelled to join the army because there was nothing else to do with their lives and they end up in an occupational force in a country where everybody looks exactly like they did and everybody grew up in neighborhoods just like they did and but they're standing around with guns and smoking cigarettes and and having to live in a barracks with three layers of fence around it and um you know Elvis Costello is is uh, riding around the country in a van playing shows and i feel like this whole first verse of clamp down is that juxtaposition of like 
you could be a young and free punk rocker uh, with no money in your pocket, but you wouldn't be like this baby faced kid with a black beret on and a rifle slung over your shoulder uh, in a colony, essentially. The lyrics go, um, taken off his turban, they said, is this man a Jew working for the clampdown? The clampdown, of course, would be any any occupational colonial army. And I'm not sure if they're talking about checkpoints in the West Bank here with the, uh, you know, is this man a Jew or is this some reference to uh, another conflict where Jews are being persecuted? And it's hard to say. Um, they put up a poster saying we earn more than you, which is like the bait that these kids were served, right? Like this is how they get them in the military. Um, we're working for the clampdown. We will teach our twisted speech to the young believers. We will train our blue eyed men to be young believers. We're going to take these working class kids from disadvantaged neighborhoods. And I think that, you know, Strummer's not just talking about England. He's not just talking about Newcastle and Manchester and Liverpool and London. He's also talking about neighborhoods all over the world where they're recruiting these kids who are the, you know, prime of their lives and they get recruited into the military because that's really one of the only choices that they have. They get trained and armed, and then they're used to project force into a colony as an occupying force. He's talking about South Africa. He's talking about uh, Lebanon at that time. Uh, he's talking about uh, the West Bank. He's talking about Northern Ireland. This is all like a criticism of the system where young, disadvantaged, poor kids are recruited into the military and then used as shock troops in a colonial occupation. And I think the references to blue-eyed men uh, is just, it's calling back to the Nazi terror of just a few years earlier. I think now, let's see, it was 30 years earlier that World War II had ended for Joe Strummer, and it's been more than that since the song was written. And so at the time, you know, um, I think Strummer is making an implicit connection between the idea of British supremacy and white supremacy and Nazism and... Um, that's going to be real uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people. But um, I think that uh, Joe Strummer just instinctively distrusted militarism as a whole and uh, colonialism also more specifically. I love how uh, at the beginning of each line, Topper Heaton does this like and kick and it mirrors the guitar line, uh, which is this great just like little uh, bar chord box that is just furious. I mean, imagine writing that and just doing like this is the angriest little bar chord box ever. And it's uh, it's perfect. And then then we get. This what sort of functions as the chorus here. We will teach our twisted speech to the unbelievers. We will train our blue-eyed men to the unbelievers. I read somewhere that's Paul Simonon doing those harmony back vocals, and I think it's really great. It's almost like a little little Beatles interval, which is funny considering like just the fury in this song. And then comes what I think is my favorite verse of my favorite song on my favorite Clash album. <laughs> the judge said five to ten, but I say double that again. I'm not working for the clampdown. No man born with a living soul can be working for the clampdown. I mean, fuck yeah, Joe. <laughs> judge said five to ten, but I say double that again. I'm 
And the whole time, Topper Heaton is maintaining this really rigid, straight backbeat. One, two, three, four. And I love, number one, how rigid it is, but also like as strident as it is, it never runs away with the song. Like I have tried to play Clampdown live because we wanted to learn it in some band I was in. And it's just so hard not to play this thing at like hardcore band tempos because it's just a powerful song and it's so exciting. And yet like, you know, toppers in the pocket man the next uh, couple of lines uh, are a call for like actual resistance uh kick over the wall cause governments to fall how can you refuse it let fury have the hour anger can be power do you know that you can use it this is stirring stuff man i love this like i love that this song is not just an indictment of the sort of misuse by power of youth to project force into occupied territories, but it's also a call to action. Also, if you listen close, there's some cowbell uh, in that chorus. Listen. I think that cowbell there just serves to reinforce the stridency of that like super choppy one, two, three, four backbeat. And I think it's really cool. One thing you got to hand it to the clash for, they don't waste any time. We've had like a verse and a half and, and, and maybe half a chorus. And now we're at the bridge. Um, and the feel of the bridge is less strident. Of course, it gets this sort of, um, a little bit funkier thing. There's actually some conga sort of banging around back there. Uh, the voices in your head are calling, stop wasting your time. There's nothing coming. Only a fool would think someone could save you. The men at the factory are old and cunning. You don't owe nothing, so boy, get running. It's the best years of your life they want to steal. So now we've moved away for a minute from the colonial occupation force of the first half of the song into something a little closer to home for like a young British man, which is this like factory life that's calling. And while it may or may not be a total dead end, uh, the clash clearly feel that it is a waste of youth. like the juxtaposition of the Mick Jones vocal part against the Joe Strummer part. Mick Jones is singing about like the tired, dead-end life on the home front, and Joe Strummer is singing about the tired, dead-end life being a colonial occupational squatty. And the bridge hits this like brief crescendo with this lot of extra percussion stuff happening. There's a, um, I can't remember the name of that bell instrument, and a vibra slap. That's the sort of classic Western sound that you hear is... It's only, it's very rare that you get an opportunity to use one of those. So I've never bought one, but man, they're really fun to hit when you finally get the opportunity. And then there's a great pick slide. You know what a pick slide is? Man, pick slides are fun. There's just something fun about doing that. It's such a great way to like build a transition because it just feels fun. Like the sound of it just sounds like things are changing. And I love that. It's, it's, I mean, maybe because I was raised on like records by bands like Boston, but I just love a pick slide. Joe Strummer comes back in with an absolutely punishing verse, but 
you grow up and you calm down and you're working for the clampdown, you start wearing blue and brown and working for the clampdown. So he's implying that, like, if you stay in this role of squatty, you eventually make it into the managerial class of NCO or officer corps. And, um, well, I'll let, I'll let Joe's opinions about the NCO and officer corps speak for him. Um, so you got someone to boss around and makes you feel big now. You drift until you brutalize and make your first kill now. That cowbell's back there in the first half of that too, by the way. Didn't want that to escape your notice. So you got someone to boss around and make you feel big. What's interesting is then we have like, I guess I would almost call this a third verse, but it's really, uh, it, it backs off of the stridency just a hair and you get this great organ part. Listen to these first two lines. In these days of the album credits list Mickey Gallagher as the organ player, and it, it sets up this sort of pre-coda, like outro verse, and um, the lyrics are, um, in these days of evil presidentes, uh, which of course just means presidents in Spanish, plural, working for the clampdown, but lately one or two has fully paid their due for working for the clampdown. And I don't know specifically what um, evil presidente he's talking about at this point, Um I don't know if many of them had faced their come up and um, just a few years earlier, General Francisco Franco, who had been the fascist leader of Spain, had died in 1975. Anastasio Somoza had been deposed in Nicaragua in 1978. I think he fled into exile in Paraguay and wasn't assassinated until 1980. Alfredo Strossner in Paraguay and Augusto Pinochet in Chile and the dictatorship in Brazil all lasted into the 80s and 90s. So maybe he was just talking about Samosa and Franco. I don't know. Anyway, there's just a couple of lines of um, hot, get along, get along, working for the clamp down, hot, get along, get along, working for the clamp down, um, that uh, maybe he's uh, suggesting that all of these evil presidentes should meet their uh, just desserts. Hot, get along, get along. And then we come to this final section of the song, which is kind of a little coda, um, where he says, yeah, I'm working hard in Harrisburg, which it turns out is a reference to Three Mile Island, which I, I didn't even realize this for years. It never occurred to me to ask what Harrisburg he was talking about, but it turns out that he has said in interviews that he was talking about Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the site of the Three Mile Island meltdown. Yeah, I'm working hard in Harrisburg. And because he is no tanky, uh, Joe also throws the rush under the bus, working hard in Petersburg. And there's some kind of coda guitar stuff happening. There's a harmonic uh, on the low E that goes from five to seven. And back to five. And there's some sort of Mick Jones guitar noodling going on as we kind of get deeper into the coda. Um, working for the clamp down. Hot, get along, get along. 
begging to be melted down, which turns out is a Three Mile Island reference. I had no idea. You know, it only just now occurs to me that if you're not Gen X or older, you may have no idea what the whole Three Mile Island thing references. Um, Three Mile Island was the name of a nuclear plant in rural Pennsylvania. In the spring of 1979, if I recall correctly, there was an accident where the all of the coolant water was drained out of the nuclear tower. The coolant water is the only thing that keeps the actual nuclear core from um, getting into a, a, what they call a chain reaction where it, it gets so active and so hot that it melts together and then begins to melt through the floor of the containment silo and potentially burns its way all the way to the Earth's core. Uh, and that very nearly happened in Pennsylvania that day. There was a huge cloud of radioactive gas that was released, and it drifted over rural Pennsylvania. And I'm, I'm, as I recall, there was a, like a, a spike in radiation levels for miles from the factory. And, um, you know, there was a point where we all thought, well, that, that could have been it. That could have ended the world. So it wouldn't surprise me if that was sort of weighing heavy on Joe Strummer's imagination as he was writing this tune. <laughs> The whole Three Mile Island thing was shocking and that like some scientists were saying, well, there's a possibility that this like ball of molten nuclear material could uh, exponentially uh, continue to react uh, and just burn right through the Earth's core all the way through the planet and pop out somewhere on the other side, like in China. And um, it was shocking to a lot of people and it really like... It's hard to explain to anyone who didn't live through it what living through the nuclear age was like. Like there was always a possibility at any minute we were told that we could be hit with a nuclear strike by the Russians. Um, And there was always the possibility that one of these nuclear plants could just like blow sky high and and a ball of of molten uranium could just burn through the Earth's crust. And um, yeah, you know, as a kid, that was on my mind a lot. I'm not sure what giving away no secrets is about here. Uh, I think they're just vamping out through the song. I think <laughs> at this point, uh, the point is made. Like this, this song has amazing lyrics, and it packs an incredible punch. I think this section just kind of functions as a victory lap, essentially. <laughs> do have what I think is Paul Simonon kind of going from ear to ear in a stereo mix going work, more work, which, you know, is uh, just sort of summing up the tedious, repetitive nature of uh, of, of the workaday world. I don't have the foggiest clue with that last little falsetto screeches there. Uh, sounds like who's bawling out? I, I have no idea. Maybe someone can enlighten me on that. But um, that's it. That's Clampdown, 3 minutes and 49 seconds. Um, was not released as a single off this record, but um, the songs that were Train in Vain and London Calling both charted very well. 
as I said before, it's my favorite song on one of my favorite records of all time. I also think it's alarmingly pertinent, uh, again, uh, which, I mean, it's a little frustrating on one hand, but on the other hand, it's kind of predictable. Um, in that interview that I read with Don Letts, he said, uh, as they were doing a 40-year retrospective on London Calling, he said, um, you know, punk isn't something to look back on. It's something to look forward to. Because he was talking about all the sort of hype new English punk bands and how much he thought the scene was like, you know, still vibrant and alive and happening. And um, I don't disagree with that. Um, I also hate that um, Clampdown um, has the same searing relevance that it had 40 years ago when it was written. So rest well, Joe Strummer, guitar and vocals on this track, Mick Jones, lead guitar, Topper Heaton drums, Paul Simon and bass, The Clash. Um, I feel like we could use some more rock against racism personally, but, um, you know, what do I know? I'm 50. So, yeah. That's episode 45, the third in our song explication series, Clamped Down by the Clash. Uh, thanks to our erstwhile producer, Jake Kreger. Jake Kreger is still sending me notes after every show, even though I'm now barraging him with two episodes a week. Poor Jake, man. Uh, if this show is better now than it was the first time you heard it, that's due to Jake. Uh, thanks to Gene Wolfolk and The Powder Room. They provided all of the music in this episode that wasn't The Clash. That's the intro song and the song you're hearing under my voice right now. You could check out all of The Powder Room's music at thepowderroom.bandcamp.com. They're absolutely great band. Uh, throw them a few bucks. They deserve it, and they deserve to be heard. Thanks to Heil Audio for the great deal they gave me on these two PR40 microphones. The PR40 microphone is an incredibly versatile studio microphone. I used to use it on snare drum, kick drum, sometimes bass cabinet. I, maybe I used it on guitar cabinet a couple times. I can't even remember now. But it turns out it's also a brilliant broadcast mic, and that's what I've been using for my episodes. I got a really nice deal from Heil Audio, and I'm really grateful for it. If you're thinking about upgrading the microphones for your podcast, you should look into the Heil PR40. Once again, thanks for listening. You don't know what it means to me when you reach out to me and say, hey, I really enjoyed this episode or that episode because it reminds me sometimes of when I was a college radio DJ at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning and I was thinking, is anybody listening to these tunes that I'm playing? And then the phone would light up and somebody would be like, hey, man, I really like that song. And it, it would make it all worthwhile. So until we speak again, take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself. Ask for help if you need it. Go see live music. Support your favorite band. And remember, loud guitars save lives. <laughs>